Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 88. My name is Arvin. Join me as always, my colleague from PensionFanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooleman? I've been good and well. How about you? I've been I've been doing well, too. I uh, went to a, a friend's birthday party last night, which was a lot of fun. Uh, she listens to the show, so or she says Ooh. she listens to the show, so this will well. be a true test of our friendship, but uh, happy <laughs> birthday, Sonia. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been good. Uh, it was a bit weird not having a Saturday Night Leafs game. Yeah, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel for the duration of Sunday morning now. Like, I'm just yeah, in an emotional void. Yeah, it, it, it's, it feels like... It feels like it didn't actually happen. It, it, this always happens like maybe once a year, right? Where the Leafs don't play yeah. on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of throws me off for Sunday. Well, especially because we record on Sundays in part because, you know, the Saturday night game is kind of the capstone of the week. Yeah, exactly. We had this whole schedule planned right out. And then every now and then the league disobliges us and makes us socialize on the Saturday night, which is pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Of course, we're going to get, like, a, a story, you know, three or four days from now where it's like, oh, Hockey Night in Canada ratings were down, like, 75%. Right? Yeah, and, and then, you know, someone will be like, why do you report so much on the Leafs? Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, so a couple of things have happened since we last recorded, since last week we were off for technical difficulties. Uh, a couple of signings. The more recent one is our Lord and Savior, Martin Marincin, has taken a one-year contract extension at seven hundred grand. This is an eminently fine seventh defenseman contract. Yes, like if if someone is actually annoyed about this deal, it's um, it's just weird. So this is a completely variable amount. Marinson is capable of playing either side. He's capable of playing on the PK. You can put him down in the AHL. He's probably not going to get claimed on waivers. Um, and if he is, it's not that big a deal. But yeah. Um, you can put him through on waivers. In the AHL, he is a great defenseman. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, this is exactly what you need. 700K is the, the minimum salary as well. So, this is about as, you know, no fuss a signing as you could possibly have. There, there's really nothing to get worked up about. It's just a depth defenseman signing. Um, and I guess it gives a little bit more certainty into the Leafs defense core next year in mm-hmm. that, you know, you at least know, okay, we have one guy as an option on like the third pair, um, regardless of what else happens. I think the most likely thing is Marinson will play spot duty again, injury, uh, like stepping in for injuries to other defensemen. Um, but I don't think he's going to be a regular next year. Just like a, he's not really a regular right now. It's just because of the Jake Muzzin injury. Yeah. Like the odds are, I expect he will play NHL games next year, but he won't play most of them. And part of the value is, one, he's about to turn 28. So there's not really a concern with developing Martin Marincin at this point. We know what he is. We know what he can do. We know that sometimes he makes decisions with the puck that are eccentric, let's say. But that, by and large, he'll go out and he'll play a third-pairing shift when you need him to. And he'll generally be fine. His results will at least be good enough. His shot results, as we've talked about before and kind of memed about, have always been good. So he's extremely fine to have as a seventh defenseman. He's not going to embarrass himself at least too consistently. So, yeah, that's an easy one. Yeah. Um, And then the other transaction is that uh, the Leafs have re-signed Justin Hall to a three-year deal worth $6 million. Um, No 
there's a signing bonus uh, applying to next year, but other than that, it's all um, actual salary, and it's a flat $2 million every year, so there's no front-loading or back-loading at all. So Justin Hall has been kind of a, I guess, a surprise to, to, to many people, um, and we should give him credit. There are some people who have been claiming for a while that Justin Hall is a good NHL defenseman, and, I mean, maybe good NHL defenseman, which implies to me above average. It's a bit of a stretch, but he's certainly an NHL defenseman, and you can make a good argument that he's an average NHL defenseman, which is um, quite good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like, it's—I think, again, this is a good signing, right? It, yeah, I think not, this is fine. Yeah, it's not something I get worked up about. I think you and I are probably—we were late on the bandwagon to, to Hall. I've liked what he's done mm-hmm. in the past— little bit the thing is we still don't have a huge sample on it which, which is the funny thing it feels like he's been around forever but in terms of games played in the nhl he still doesn't have that many of course he has a very very extensive ahl track record under both keith and dubas together so they clearly felt quite confident in him and mm-hmm. from hall's perspective it's easy to see why he took this deal this is um pretty significant money for a guy who to date has made maybe you know one to two million in his nhl career Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we've talked about before, Justin Hall has a case for having been our best right-shooting defenseman this season. I have to say, statistically, Tyson Berry's numbers have been so strong since the Sheldon Keefe trade that as much as he frustrates me, he's doing better than he was. Uh, I think a lot of those numbers are attributable to forwards. But Justin Hall has done well. He's been on a second pairing and been quite competent. If you have a guy who can either be totally reliable on a third pairing or who can plausibly jump up to a second pairing on a regular basis if he's not the better player on it, which, you know, Jake Muzzin is obviously a better defenseman than Justin Hall, but the two of them worked. And so having a right defenseman who can do that for $2 million, I think is totally fine. The uh, the comparable contracts that I thought of were Greg Paterin, who got two point two five for three years, or Nick Jensen, who got 2.5 for four. Um, They aren't exactly comparable, because both those guys had played a few more games than Justin Hall had, but they both were defensemen who don't have a ton of points, but who broke into the league late. I think this was totally in line with the going rate, and I did see a few people who wanted to get a discount on this, which, you know, is is fair, I guess. I mean, you always like to get a discount, I suppose, but... He's coming up UFA. Like, it would be a different story if he were a restricted free agent, and then you should really capture value there. But, like, I don't think that this is in any sense an overpay. The worst-case scenario is he turns back into a pumpkin, and then, you know, we have a million dollars a year that we can't use. You know, that's not nothing. That, that kind of sucks. But the evidence does seem to be he's an NHLer. And so if he is a guy who can regularly play in the top six... Even $2 million isn't that big a deal. So, yeah, this is a fine signing. Yes, it's worth noting that he does have a modified no-trade clause where he submits a 10-team no-trade list. Um, I'm basically fine with that. His, If it does come to the Leafs wanting or needing to trade him for whatever reason, I don't think that will be a huge object. His salary is small enough that basically any team could fit him, and... There'd be, assuming he doesn't turn completely into a pumpkin and you know become a non-NHL player, I think he'll have reasonable demand as a as a prime age defenseman on a fair contract. Yeah, I, I mean, by and large, I don't see how you can be really that unhappy with it. 
mostly because I don't see how you can be unhappy with how Justin Hall has developed this year. You know, he's he's been impressive, and so good for him. Yeah, I um, basically agree with that. So we're good in that regard. So we wanted to talk a bit about the Sheldon Keefe era. We've now gotten to the point where we have a decent-ish sample. It's been 22 games under Sheldon Keefe. The Leafs' record in those games is quite impressive. They've surged back into the playoff race when it looked like they might be so far gone. That would be a struggle. And we probably want to talk about what genuinely seems to be improving, what really is working, what maybe <laughs> what maybe is a bit of wishful thinking in some parts. Like, if the Leafs keep winning three-quarters of their games, then they're the best team in the NHL over the long haul. That'll be tough to sustain. But there is genuine improvement. There are things to really get excited about with this team again. And, you know, I think more generally winning is a lot of fun, but they've played well in a lot of ways that we can measure. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that that, that sums it up. Uh, looking at 5-on-5 five five to start, under Keith they have a 53.5, uh, sorry, 53.8% Corsi rate and a um, 55% expected goals. Those both comfortably rank, you know, in the upper echelons, echelon, sorry, of the league, uh, which is obviously a positive thing. Somewhat alarmingly, a team that is above us in both respects is now the Tampa Bay Lightning, who have completely, you know, flipped a switch. Um, after Those bastards through, suckered me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, all year I was like, okay, Tampa will shake this off, and when they wake up, they're going to destroy everybody again. And then they just sort of muddled through long enough that I was like, well, maybe, I don't know. And then they've just clobbered everybody, you know, 10-game winning streak. Their only weakness really in recent weeks has been Andre Vasilevsky. And if he can be good enough, they're kind of impossible to stop. So. Yeah, he's, he's on like a pretty big shutout streak right now, isn't he? He's remembered so. how goaltending works, it appears. Uh, so, that's, that's dismaying. Um, yeah, that was kind of their only weakness. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, you know, so, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But Exactly. Um, the, regardless of, you know, how Tampa's doing, it, it's hard to argue that the numbers on the Leafs have not also been good. And we've kind of been banging this drum for a little bit, but also kind of being cautious about it and saying that, okay, you know, we've had... A gigantic outlier game with Detroit where we outscored them by, like, four expected goals, which is stunningly uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. We've had a bit of a soft schedule, but, you know, we, we'd also be remiss to fail to point out that we've been injured, right? We're missing Ilya Mikheyev, we're missing Andreas Janssen, we're missing Jake Muzzin. Those are three guys who are upper half of the lineup guys at this point, mm-hmm. right? Um, I guess one of Mikheyev or Janssen will nominally play on the, on the third line but they're, you know, both very good players. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is... It, it, that part of it feels somewhat real, right? And there's a question of, okay, well, how is this going to translate against um, high-level opposition? I think one of the more encouraging games that we saw was a game against the Islanders, where, you know, the Islanders are very adept at slowing things down, but the Leafs were able to play that game and mostly... Um, mostly do all right against the Islanders in that way. And, you know, it was a very positive result. Yeah, I was um, bored to tears and maybe the point of, like, eye-rolling injury because the Islanders absolutely gummed that game up. But it was encouraging that the Leafs 
still outplayed them doing that. Like, they genuinely were the better team on the ice, in my opinion. I saw some stuff where they argued that they actually got goalied by Curtis McElhinney. And I'm like, no, you didn't. By, by Hutchinson, you mean? Oh, God. I'm living in the past, sorry. It's been a rough time for me in terms of Leafs backup boys. By Michael Hutchinson, which is kind of nuts. I really do think that, um, you know, that was a game where you saw the limitations of the Isles, which is that they don't have a ton of elite scoring talent, like as much as maybe they might need. And yeah, that's and holding I, them back from real contention. Man, I w- if only they had a player like John Tavares. <laughs> but where would they find such a thing? Yeah, so... That's, I mean, look, we can't really throw stones at the Isles. I think they're still ahead of us in the standings. Um, they are. But, yeah, that, that is the weakness of that team, and that's, you know, that's the most expensive thing to uh, to acquire on the market, and that's why John Tavares commands a lot of money. That's why Austin Matthews does as well. And that's mm-hmm. why we signed them, right? Like, it's, to some extent, um, and this is true of, you know, other kind of high-skill teams or, like, teams with elite uh, top-end forwards like Pittsburgh and Boston and Tampa Bay. Uh, just to mm-hmm. name a few, where, you know, I think teams will often play them and play them pretty well, and then they get undone by a moment of magic against, you know, from Sidney Crosby or from Steven Samkos or from Brad Marchand. And they're like, oh, man, like, if, if only, you know, we didn't get have that happen to us, we, we would have been fine. It's like, well, yes, but that's in large part what that team is predicated on. That's why they've allocated a huge part of their cap to that particular player, because he can do that. Yeah, like, you can't get high and mighty about how, you know, like, we're not spending all this money on those glory boys that you have. And then when you get scored against by a really dynamite play from an elite player, and then you're like, well, that was kind of a fluke, really. How did that happen? It's, it's like, well, no, that's kind of the rules of the game. And as much as the Isles have had several well-deserved victory laps at our expense in recent years, because, you know, I thought they were going to be crap last year. I think most people and, did. Yeah, and they weren't. They were good. So kudos to them for that. But some of the stuff about you know, kind of crowing at the Leafs' expense when you're saying it's like, well, you know, we, we picked up Leo Komarov and Matt Martin. It's like, that's wasted money. That's money in cap that you don't have and that you probably could use for guys who are not even regular lineup players now, you know? Yeah, and I mean, with the Isles, their five-on-five successes, it's both, I think, last year and this year has been driven by goaltending. Yeah, and so we all assume, right, that Barry Trotz can goose the numbers of his goaltenders because he seems to have done so at times throughout the past. But I don't know. Like, it's not like they're doing it with guys who can't play. Like, Robin Lanner has gone to the Chicago Blackhawks this year who are atrocious defensively, like really, really bad, and he's still putting up very good results. So to some extent, it is they have goaltending talent. That doesn't make it unreal. You know, a goaltender is part of your team like anyone else. But if that ever fails them a little bit, suddenly that team doesn't have a lot to hang its hat on. Because again, they don't really have the high quality scoring talent. And I have to be honest, they don't have the defensive personnel that I really think are kind of dominating. Like they play a very well-coached game. They have a lot of responsible players. They do do a good job of kind of gumming up the center of the ice. But, like, looking at that defense group, you you know, I don't see a lot of guys who I'm like, oh, this guy's a genuine Norris contender or something like that. 
I just see a bunch of people playing pretty well and having great goaltending. So that's they're also outperforming their goal differential by a decent amount. Like their goal differential is is plus eleven, which would put them um, like twelfth in the league, uh, slightly above average. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're like the fifth team in the league by points. So part of that, yeah, exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. They're, they're, and their five on five gold force percentage is like a hair above fifty percent, which makes sense. They they have basically average shot numbers and above average goaltending, which boosts them slightly. Uh, I don't know what their special teams are are like. I am I imagine their power play is not amazing, just given the lack of high end finishing talent outside of Anders Lee and Matt Barzal, and I guess Brock Nelson. But that that's still not you know a yeah. stupefying amount of offensive talent. But anyways, enough about the Islanders. Uh, we should <laughs> go back to talking about the Leafs. Um, one thing I want to point out is that so there's always been a lot of talk about can the Leafs win playing quote unquote this way, and where this way is assumed to mean they're not great defensively, and it's true they're not great defensively, but they are not awful defensively, and that sounds like damning with faint praise, and I suppose it is, but they are you know a top three, top two team in the league offensively at five on five by basically whatever metric you choose under Sheldon Keefe, and defensively they are slightly below average. But the big yeah. important thing is they're in that big mass of teams that is kind of just around, you know, does what the average NHL team does. There's not a huge difference between being the 10th best um, defensive team in the league and being the 20th best defensive team in the league. Yeah, it's like you just have to not suck so badly that you submarine yourself entirely. And the Leafs have kind of done that. It's weird because, hmm... I don't know if I think that they've actually gotten much better defensively. They do seem to have really focused on that defensive strategy where they do kind of collapse to the net and they pounce on rebounds a lot. I have noticed that. Like, they try to recover any rebound as fast as they can and get it out. And they almost sort of accept, look, teams are going to get long shots against us and we're going to let it happen. We're just going to try and stop second opportunities. Which, you know, like anything else, it's a trade-off. So far, it seems to be conducive to them being better defensively than they've been in recent years. Certainly the change from under Babcock this season is, is quite dramatic. It's like a, a 0.5 XG per 60 difference just on the defensive side. Yeah, and, and that, like, to be clear, that's a huge improvement. It's, a, it's um, enormous. It's an enormous yeah. improvement. So, you know, that's good. And then they're sustaining more offensive zone time. Now, the objection to, you know, we've already talked about some of the things like sustaining aggressive cycling and third forward coming very high to the blue line or even farther. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm an idiot. I, I misread the, the column there. It's, it's, it is an improvement uh, defensively, but I was looking at goals for, not expected goals for. The expected oh. goals for improvement is closer to like 0.15 expected goals per 60, which is still notable, but it, it pales in comparison to the offensive improvement. Right, okay. So, they're better. They're better enough to get to mediocrity defensively. Yeah. Because, you know, if if you're getting a lot of offensive zone time, you ideally want to do stuff with it. You want to get to the high danger areas of the ice. You want to put dangerous shots on net. But if you have it in the offensive zone, unless your goalie is Vesitoskala, you're not getting scored on. So, there's an inherent defensive improvement just from increasing the amount of time you're playing on offense nothing else you have to you know you don't want to turn into we're just trying to play keep away in the offensive zone but i think that this strategy is pretty coherent it's shown signs of real improvement 
And I think you have to give Shelton Keefe credit. You know, the team looks better. Yeah. Uh, you and, know, and they are playing genuinely better, even if they are running into hot right now. Yes. And pe- people talk about, there's been some research done. I've done this at the, this research at the, at the team level, extending some work that Mike McCurdy did, but the player level showing that like offense and defense are not inherently there's not a huge obvious relationship between them you, you don't teams don't typically you know trade off offense for defense in like a one-for-one manner it's possible for mm-hmm. to have you know a team that's good offensively bad defensively and all you know all four combinations of that but that doesn't mean there aren't certain strategies that lend themselves to that sort of trade-off and certainly there is some relationship be- between the two because as you said if you always have the puck you aren't playing defense as often mm-hmm. um so yeah it's it, it's been good i mean if you're looking at um, XGA per 60 at 5-on-5, five five, the Leafs are 13th best in the league under Keefe. Um, and that's that's com- it's an imperfect comparison. We're comparing Keefe's air- sample to everyone else's full-year sample, essentially. But the more important thing to note is just that they're no longer a very, very bad defensive team. Yeah, and that's pretty huge. So, actually, you know what? I had a bad take and I was going to stow it away at the end, but it's come up organically. So I'm just going to sidetrack right into it. This is our kind of hidden bad take of the week, or at least mine. Uh, The Athletic has these NHL power rankings on which all of their NHL reporters vote. Power rankings are an interesting concept. You know, the rankings are always a little bit kind of forced and subjective. Otherwise, you're just reflecting the standings, which is not really useful. But the reuse of that sort of thing, I think, is that it gives you a pretext to kind of survey the whole league. You know, it gives you an opportunity to talk about everything. And so in the most recent edition, the Leafs were ranked 8th in the NHL, which is fine. And here was the sum total of the comment on them. The Leafs are on the, on the move under Sheldon Keith. At some point, though, they'll need to figure out how to win games that aren't track meets. Why? Why will they need to do that? And then some people say, you know, like, you can't win that way in the playoffs. I'm like, two and a half years ago, the Penguins won with expected goals against, worse than the Leafs have now. They had a great offense. And people say, you know, they had Crosby and Malkin. Yeah, they had really good players, really good forwards. But their defense was held together with spit and bailing wire. And I don't understand why people don't acknowledge that there are teams that win cups. Uh, that win games that are track meets and it works for them you need good goaltending you need good players you need a lot of things because winning the cup is always hard but I don't think anyone really bothers to prove that you can't win as an offensively focused team because you can you know everyone just takes it for granted that only St. Louis has ever really won the cup or teams like it and the thing is when a defensive team doesn't win the cup, it's not seen as a referendum on that style of play. Like, the Islanders got swept embarrassingly last year by by Carolina, who is a much better offensive team than them. Mm-hmm. And no one was like, "Oh, see, I mean, sometimes you got to win games that are high offense." Yeah, right? like that's not like a a <laughs> thing that the Islanders are now having to talk about. It's like, oh, is our style going to work in the playoffs where we where we're up against you know high level forwards and whatnot? It, it, it's just not seen that way. Right. The other thing is, I, I reject the premise that the Leafs are. If the if the Leafs were spectacularly bad defensively, that'd be one thing. But they're not. Right. They under Keith, they have a better xGA per sixty than the St. Louis Blues. They have a better xGA per sixty than the New York Islanders. Teams that are seen as good defensively and genuinely are 
you know, pretty good defensively. Now, the difference between the Leafs and those teams defensively is essentially nothing. It's a rounding error, more or less, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly, we don't have enough confidence in our XG models to say, okay, yeah, the, the team with 2.19 XGA per 60 is clearly better than the team with 2.22 XGA per 60. Yeah. All, all you can say is, yeah, they're about the same level, right? But that's all the Leafs kind of need to be. They just need to be not awful at defensively. Um, and they, so far, haven't been awful defensively when we look at, like, the sum total of their, um, the shots that they, and the chances that they give up. Now, the thing is, depending on how you define defensively, the Leafs could still be awful defensively per your view, right? Because I think when a team gets us into the defensive zone, I am still, like, shitting my pants. Yes, and and this was predictable when we knew what Keith was instilling. We kind of even said at the time this would happen. They're giving up odd man rushes again. They've always done this to some extent, but it does seem to me like it's happening to us a bit more often than it did in the first part of the year, simply because we'll have these uh, continuing cycles in the offensive zone that count on everybody to move to the next position. And so you have a lot more reliance on your forwards to cover pinches, uh, to kind of rotate around to make sure that there's always someone back. And we've seen pinches. Justin Hall, uh, fresh off his new contract, had one. Against uh, Winnipeg, right? Yeah, and it was like a Tavares' pass jumped over a stick, and either Kerf Kerfoot or Nylander didn't rotate. I forget who was at fault for that, or if it was just a bad pinch by Hall. But regardless, like, you know, the the style that Keith is implementing requires precision for, from all that stuff, and it has pretty disastrous consequences when things go poorly. And actually, you know, and that, that's a fair criticism of um, the system, and it might lead to them being a little overrated in terms of expected goals models because mm -hmm. a lot of expected goals models um, don't fully account for, you know, whether it's a two-on-one or a rush chance and or things like that, or a breakaway, things of the of that nature. Um, it's it's hard to you know encapsulate those and really credit the offensive team for generating that chance without um, also flagging up a lot of false positives in other areas of. Um, of the game but mm -hmm. yeah I mean on on the whole it's it's not it's it, it we're not you know the we're not the, we're not the Red Wings <laughs> and thank God for that because the Red Wings are approaching tank sabers territory but yeah I don't think that you can be anything but encouraged with the overall trend here you can say that there are flaws you can say that this team is not totally fixed which they're not and the current defense configuration, I have to admit, I really miss Jake Muzzin, even though, you know, his performance was up and down this year. I think he was dealing with uh, an ongoing injury prior to blocking a shot. But I do miss him as kind of a defensive conscience of a second pairing. And I'm aware that we're a little bit flying by the seat of our pants in terms of some of the constructions. You know, we, we are using Martin Murinchin, frankly, which is always a sign that something is up. But by and large, you know, it's worked. It's worked well enough anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that, that we focused on 5-on-5 five five here, um, but the special teams have been much better under Keefe, and part of that is it's always a bit hard to kind of completely isolate you know why is that happening certainly part of it is we are just playing our top players on the on the power play more and that was i think a change everyone wanted to see more or less mm -hmm. um that was kind of a 
low-hanging fruit type of change. And actually, it's worth noting that Keefe has been playing his top forwards a lot at 5-on-5 five five as well, right? And that is a good way to improve your team. I haven't seen any discussion over whether he is potentially overplaying those guys. We, we hear that talk all the time with Edmonton and McDavid and Dreisaitl, and people are attributing Dreisaitl's poor play recently to fatigue because basically he's being asked to play a superhuman workload. I ha- I'm not aware of what the best, you know, what the optimal amount of ice time for players are. I don't right. think anyone does know no, that I, for sure, right? And it depends on the player. Yes, um, certainly. And the Leafs were playing a more balanced ice time distribution. For a long time, I think, some of us anyway, kind of assumed that there's probably a sports science reason for that. Like, we were, to a certain extent, bucking the trend. You know, other superstar players were playing more than our guys, and we thought, okay, we have uh, very strong forwards. It makes sense to maybe try and rest them if we're getting a benefit down the line. Right now, we're playing our top guys more. They're scoring. Um, Matthews, as I understand it, is like, you know, he's shooting a bit hot, but he's kind of a similar player to what he was before, i.e. a really, really good goal scorer. It's just he's playing more. Yeah, on and a so rate he basis, has more opportunity to get goals. On a rate basis, he actually has fewer points or a, few, a lower point rate under Keith than he did under Babcock at five on five. Um, yeah, there's been gains and, at five v four, and there's been gains, as you said, just from playing him more. And that's it should be said like that. That is a good thing. A good way to make your team better is to play your good players more and your bad players less. Right? Like it's obvious, and, but there is a trade off. There's a possible trade off, and. The thing is, I don't think any of us are educated enough to say whether the Leafs are, you know, where they are kind of on that scale of are they overtaxing these guys or not. I think only they know that, and even they probably don't know that with certainty, right? I mean, Katya always has this joke that the number of ideal starts for a goalie is whatever Frederick Anderson starts, minus five. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's meant to, to show the fact that, like, we're all just kind of guessing from the outside in. Right, sports science mm-hmm. and medicine is a very tricky thing to analyze. The human body is very complex. You know, people. You know, I'm I'm not an expert, but I think doctors have to study for a while before they become doctors. It's not. <laughs> it's not something you can just. It's pick a up. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, you know they, they go to med school and stuff, and even with them, there's like disagreements, and you know people have different ideas about rest and uh, workloads and how all that stuff fits in. And it's all very individualized as well. So, you know, it's to an extent we always just kind of defer to whatever the people on the inside are saying because we have no particular expertise when it comes to medicine. Yeah, you, I do. I am kind of conscious. You know, I'm not competent to criticize. The most I would say is that there could potentially be a price to pay down the line. I don't know if in two months we're going to be saying oh shit, Matthews looks like he's lost some of his pep. I wonder if he's tired out, if he's aggravated a nagging injury, if any number of things have happened that might not have happened if he played less. Right now, it looks like pure profit. We have a really good player. He's playing really well. He's playing more, and that makes sense, and it's helping us win at present. So, you know, maybe it is just he's up for it. Maybe he's more up for it than he was one or two years ago was the other thing, is he's kind of come into his own. He's a better player than he was when he entered the league. So, yeah, uh, I mean, kind of lots of moving parts there. All we can really do is note that right now, Keefe is basically saying, 
I have my horses. I'm convinced that I can ride them more than this team was doing before. And it's working for him. And I will say, Keith seems to adjust to some extent based on who he thinks is going on a given night. Like, I've seen a lot of game-to-game variation. At least, like, you'll notice Nylander seems to play a lot when things are going well for him and less when they aren't. Um, Maybe that's been more mitigated lately because we have two really strong lines with Kerfoot moved to the wing and then not so much after that. So, something to keep an eye on. But I do think that Keefe has generally pursued a strategy of playing his stars more, but also trying to vary it on a night-by-night basis. Yeah. Um, so I was mentioning the power play before we, we kind of got a little off track just on the, on the time on icing in general. So it relates to 5-on-5 five five as well. The Leafs... Um, power play when you look at like the underlying numbers <clears throat> under Keefe it, it looks good it looks certainly much better than it did under Babcock um, I think putting Nylander in the middle has helped I think they're looking downwards towards um, Tavares a bit more which has helped uh, you know you have enough talent on that group that if they gain the zone you would hope that they're able to generate some stuff and they've also been outperforming their expected goals by a very significant amount that doesn't in of itself mean it's unsustainable tampa has been doing that for a while because there are power plays based on puck movement at shot and shots from steven samkos and nikita kucherov who are two of you know the 10 best shooters in the world so it's possible to outshoot expectations consistently on the power play but yeah it, I, one thing i guess one criticism i have and i think ian Tullock has pointed this out is i don't know why the leafs are using matthews as their as their zone entry guy on the power play um yeah that's kind of odd he can do it you know he's not totally incapable but like is he the best choice yeah i think nylander and marner are both better at it than him um maybe there's a reason why they're doing it like once you get the zone maybe having matthews with the puck since he's on the outside makes it easier to to transition into having the setup um if it's uh, Nylander, for example, he has to give the puck off and then go to the middle or whatever. But that that seems like overthinking. I feel like that's not that big a deal. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's just a certain amount of we're going to put the puck in the hands of our best player. And maybe that's it. Maybe they just think that on net that adds up more. It's hard to say. I know with the power play when they fail to make a zone entry and they just kind of get stuffed out of the out of the blue line over and over again. That is deeply infuriating. And so... <laughs> my analysis of whether or not it's working is probably kind of swayed by seeing that happen and getting really annoyed. Once the Leafs set up, they look great. But, yes. You know. And it's <laughs> worth noting, like, every team, every team hates their power play setup or hates, like, how they gain the zone because, you know, the, every team has power plays where they just get nothing going. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, on net, they, they've been... They've been good in, in that regard. Uh, you could probably stand to be more creative, right? We're still basically just doing the double dropback. Yeah, we just, we've accepted that that's going to work a certain percentage of the time, and we're fine with that. I guess, you know, we don't have anything that we think is better, so here we are. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then penalty kill, uh, I, I can put up the numbers real quick. Uh, I think, again, under Keith, it's been... It's been better, and I, I well, guess... The, sorry, go ahead. Expected goals loves our penalty kill under Keefe. Yeah. And we're the... Since at 4v5, we're the best expected goals against penalty kill in the league since he started. Now, as we've said, these numbers get a, 
a little bit less reliable on special teams, one for sample size, and two for there are teams that can legit goose their shooting percentage, like Tampa and hopefully us, on the power play. But the penalty kill, again, it seems to me like a lot of the same thing where they're just pouncing on rebounds. Like, they really just don't want to allow second opportunities, and they're willing to put people very close to the goalie on either side to try and prevent that. Um, it seems to be an improvement. It's working decently well. It's not perfect, but they've put together an effective penalty kill. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I guess a, a huge part of what we're saying is like, hey, man, things are things are pretty good, and and they are. It, it's encouraging. There's now, you know, you don't want to get carried away, right? I, I think what this shows the Leafs are. I'm I'm certainly comfortable putting them in a top ten, in the top ten teams in the league at this point under Keefe, and. Yeah, I'd say so. I think if you were just looking at their numbers under Keefe, I think it's hard to argue against top five. Mm -hmm. I don't want to completely throw away the data under Babcock. Um, That stuff does still count. We still, I mean, we're saying, you know, we have 20 games under Keefe. It is just 20 games. You know, uh, we've had good 20 game samples under Babcock too. This feels better and more sustainable but you know we're, we're not infallible by any means but yeah it's 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 certainly been quite positive and you know th- th- i think there's there's no way to to look at the coaching change and think okay this is not worked out it's worked out very well now i think the next step and this is something katya has remarked on a couple times is we need to stop evaluating keith with respect to how babcock was failing and we need to start evaluating him and the team with respect to our goals and you know that it's easy to forget now after kind of the nightmare of the first two months of the year um that we were hoping to be a contender we were hoping to be a top five team Mm -hmm. right so this is you know to an extent it feels like this should be what we quote-unquote expect it doesn't feel that way and I, i guess it it never will because so much can change in hockey in such a small amount of time but you know when you look at it in that in that way like this is the way the Leafs should be succeeding and the question is well is this going to persist for a while right the the, when we have games that where it's not working well and I think to some extent um that happened a bit in in Winnipeg where John Tavares just had a bad game and it's always kind of shocking when he does because he's you know the model of consistency for the most part yeah that that was a rarely bad game I can't think of too many even with his slump at the beginning of the year where he looked like that he just was yeah. really off and yeah it happens yeah exactly um but i think the leafs are always going to be dependent on on those top four players and on you know morgan riley to an extent as well um and it, it, one thing that's worth noting again when you look at the numbers on the course of, over the course of the whole year frederick anderson hasn't been that amazing no he was really really hot for like a month and then not so much. And, you know, I, I'm i sure we don't make it easy on any goaltender, frankly, as a team. But, you know, he's been fine. He's been up and down. And we appreciate him probably all the more because of how rough Hutchinson was to start the year. But, you know, he hasn't, like, stolen win after win the way that Hellebuck has done for the Winnipeg Jets, for example. Yeah, exactly. So it's we're not getting saved by by freddy right uh, i know I, when he had mm-hmm. i think he had a really really hot november was it or was it yeah it was a really hot november 
And there's talk about, you know, oh, yeah, yeah is, should it be, should he be in the Vesna conversation? And I think that has persisted, even though his numbers have kind of flagged since then. Yeah, he's not in the Vesna conversation now. No. I love the guy. He's consistent, but like, that, that, he's not. So. He's not in the near <laughs> it right now. He, he's been under no, ex- he's not. Uh, expected. Uh, ex- like, he's been, he saved fewer goals than expected across the entire season at this point. At five on five, anyways. Yeah, like he's he's pretty good at goalie wins because we've relied on him, and, and he he plays a lot because our backups have been awful. Yeah, um, so you know that's um, that's fine. I there was some talk about who the Leafs MVP is this year, and the two options listed on the poll that I saw were Matthews and Anderson, and I I don't see how you can not pick Matthews. Like he's yeah, he's the guy, it's, it's, <laughs> you it's, know. It's, it's got to be Matthews at this point. Yeah, he's and you know he's been really really hot lately in terms of you know one he's shooting really well and two he's playing a lot and the puck's going in. Pasternak still has a four goal lead for the Richard right now, but it's starting to look like it's almost a two horse race between the two of them. Yeah, Pasternak had a hat trick quite recently. He, they, they were like neck and neck. Matthews had basically entirely t- caught up and then he had a he had a hattie. Which he annoyingly does too oh, often. Yeah, Bruins. yeah, I know. He's really good, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. So, you know, uh, I think by and large, there's a lot to like here. Uh, th- there really is. And I don't want to go off into Pollyanna territory, because, again, I don't think this team is, like, solved. And we're not guaranteed a playoff spot by any means. You know, like, today we're playing the Florida Panthers, who are right on our tail. Um in some good news, Buffalo and Montreal have done us a favor by imploding. Um, they're both uh, nine points back of us, and neither of them has a game in hand. So, like, y- you know, we're certainly capable of blowing that lead, but they really ought to be kind of done by this point as far as we're concerned. It's really a four-horse race for the three Atlantic spots, and, I mean, Tampa and Boston look very secure. I think we are somewhat less secure, but still in a good spot. And then we're competing with Florida, really. Yeah, I mean, we're certainly in control our own destiny territory. Where we play Florida quite a bit, including today. And if we can rack up some wins against them, we can settle this pretty quickly. But we'll see. I mean, you know, I say that, but I remember Leafs teams that imploded when it seemed like they had everything wrapped up. So... Uh, we'll wait and see. But still, like, given that we're, like, inside track for the third seed again, when we were 25th in the standings uh, at the time of Babcock's dismissal, that's pretty good. It's pretty encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so one other thing we wanted to discuss today was actually kind of trade. So we're coming up on NHL trade season. The trade deadline's in, what, like a month and a bit? Mm -hmm. And... The Leafs will probably not do anything, and that is because we have no room to do anything. Um, And, you know, we have no room to do anything, which means any fantasy trade, which, you know, regardless of whether the Leafs will do anything, fantasy trading as a Leafs fan is like a rite of passage. Everyone likes to do it. Everyone wants to do it, right? And that means you have to (laughs) actually give someone up who is making a reasonable salary. And this is part of why William Nylander always comes up in trade conversations, because he is basically the only big ticket salary item that is that you can move, right? You're clearly not trading Tavares 
Matthews, uh, Marner. And then you can make an argument for trading Riley uh, from a hockey perspective, but it's just very obviously not happening from uh, because of everything else, right? And because of how weak the team is defensively in general. Mm-hmm. But um, we're not going to talk, I don't think, too much about trading Nylander or Riley because trading the first would be dumb and trading the second is not happening. Yeah. Um, and I think most people, most Leafs fans, kind of feel the same way but about those at this point. So what it often resorts to is trading the guys who are making the next highest amount on the list, and that's essentially Kasperi Kapanen and Andreas Janssen. Yes, and Andreas Janssen has been injured recently, but he's returning right now, um, or imminently, I should say. I don't know if he's playing today. That's kind of wait and see, but he's playing soon, it sounds like. Yes, and I mean, I guess... Just to to give, I guess, some background on their salaries and, you know, how how they work in a in a trade. Um, let me just pull up Cap Friday real quick to make sure I get the right numbers. Kapanen has uh, three years, including this one, at 3.2 mil, at which point he'll be an RFA. Um, Janssen has, I have to scroll all the way down to the LTIR section, Janssen has four years, including this one, at 3.4 million, at which point he will be a UFA. Right? So they're mm-hmm. both making kind of mid-level salaries and they're both mid-level players i think when these contracts were signed we said that these were good deals but not like absolute steals from the lease it was like kind of pretty fair to both sides and i i pretty much mm-hmm. stand by that um i think people are a little bit excited about trading Kapanen right now and, and in part it's because of the emergence of some of the other guys on the marlies and the found wallet we have in Ilya mikhaev Right, but Pierre mm-hmm. Engvall has been great to start his NHL career, um, and, and I got to give credit to a PPP commenter, not Norm Ullman, who like five years ago was saying, "Hey, look out for Engvall," and I laughed him off at that point, being like, "This, you know, guy in the Swedish second league who doesn't score there is probably not going to be an NHLer." Well, you know, Norm was right, <laughs> and I was wrong. Yeah, he's an NHLer. You got to give him credit on that one. He got that one. That was uh, quite the pick. Yeah, and uh, but he's been really impressive. Like. I'm no longer really questioning whether Engvall is an NHL player anymore. Now I'm like, okay, how high can he go? Yes. Because he can he can play a third liner right now, and he's good at it. So, yeah, that's encouraging. Yeah, and the idea there is that, you know, if you can replace Kapanen's production um, for cheaper on, on, on a third line, then, then you can do it. And Engvall um, is actually the same age as Kapanen, which I think a lot of people don't realize because he, he's new to us, at least if you're an mm-hmm. NHL-only fan. Um, but, you know, that idea is kind of permeated. And it's been helped by the fact that Kapitan's flaws have come into a sharper relief this year. Would you agree? Yeah, I I think it's been overstated, frankly, how much he's struggled. I think that he's a guy who, I mentioned this before, but he has very distinct skills, and you are also put face-to-face with his limitations a lot. He seems exactly like a really, really good third-liner, and yet the degree to which he's above average on a third line doesn't seem to translate to him being successful in the top six as much as you would think that it would. You know, he struggled earlier in the year in that role. So I think that he's a very particularly placed player in terms of the pecking order, but he's a good player. And I am a little hesitant for the people who seem to almost want to just unload him for the sake of making a move. Like... 
I, I think going into this, we should say, I don't think Kyle Dubas is going to do something just to do it. And if that means he keeps Kasperi Kapanen and Andreas Janssen, he will be okay with that. So we'll see. But. Yeah. So the interesting, one of the interesting things about Kapanen, and the reason I thought he was quite underrated before, to the point where I, I in the summer I said he was a legitimate top six player in terms of impact, and I still kind of stand by that, although this year has been a little bit shaky. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but I think we get spoiled with our right side being Nylander and Marner, and we forget what a mm-hmm. second-line player looks like. Because right. when you look at, you know, his, his point rates and, th- you know, things like that, Kapanen, uh, prior to this year, was a pretty comfortable second-line player, when you, especially when you look at his shot impacts, which were w- wonderful. This year, mm-hmm. he hasn't scored as much, uh, or he hasn't acquired as, as many points, um, which it always kind of, you know, makes you seem a little less useful. And then, somewhat, a bit, somewhat more worryingly, uh, his play-driving impact has not been very good this year. Now, I am going to kind of attribute a significant chunk of that to him playing on the left side to start the year with um, Tavares and Marner in a line that just didn't work. It didn't suit Kapanen's skills. Um, and I guess this is one of the problems with reporting kind of play-driving numbers as a number as opposed to something that's more situational. We, we can't remove all context from this sort of thing, and player mm-hmm. styles do matter, and Kapanen's playing style, particularly on the left wing, was just not a good match for that type of line. Mm-hmm. But in the two years prior, he was a consistently strong uh, play driver on the right side, uh, playing on, you know, depth lines. Uh, I, I guess it's a bit unfair to call them depth lines because he did play, spend a decent amount of time with Austin Matthews last year as well. But, you know, he the skills that he has that we still see on a regular basis... I don't think those have gone away, and my bet is that he will continue to be a strong p- uh, play driver and possession driver um, from that right side, playing you know on the third line below Marner and Nylander. So I feel like trading mm-hmm. him now would—it's exactly what you shouldn't do. It's selling low. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and so I'm in not that much of a hurry. The other thing is is that, you know, if the Leafs are back to what they sort of were expected to be, if they are in the realm of contending, then as much as it's been fun that Ilya Mikhaev has emerged, he's not of much use to us for that because he probably isn't going to play again until next year. So, you know, when you account for our winger depth, he doesn't really count for the rest of this season. So you may not be in that much of a hurry to make an upgrade uh, because, you know, you will notice some of the gaps that you're going to have on, on the wing. We've been playing Alexander Kerfoot on the wing in our top six, which is fine, but then the result is that we're playing a 900-year-old Jason Spezza as our third-line center a lot. I don't know that that's super sustainable. And so if you're trading Andreas Janssen, then you have to think, am I okay with my center depth being what it is. Um, am I okay with Kerfoot moving, or am I okay with just taking a hit at left wing? So, I mean, I guess this all just adds up to a certain amount of caution. I don't know that a trade is by any means guaranteed. I like, I would not be surprised to see them do it, but I also would not be that surprised to see them sit tight. Right, and it, it'd have line. to be dollar in, dollar out, and the question is, like, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you, you trade you trade um, K- 
Kasperi Kapanen for Kale McCarr, right? Yeah, no shit. Um, yeah. So we're not saying there's no <laughs> one you can trade him for, but obviously that particular trade's not happening. Um, but you have to think about, okay, what am I going to get for Kasperi Kapanen or Andreas Janssen? And the answer is almost certainly not Sparky the Unicorn, the magical right yeah. enhancement. Like maybe if you throw in another first and you throw in, I don't know, uh, Nick Robertson, maybe maybe that gets you in the picture for a good defenseman, right? Maybe Like if Hampus Lindholm was, was right-handed, I would make that trade for him. Yeah, I, yeah. And this is the problem is because you start overvaluing your own prospects and I'm conscious this is happening to me, but I don't want to throw Nick Robertson in a trade now, you yeah. know? Like he's, he's really good. He's our best forward prospect by a lot, in my opinion. And so I'm not that, uh, that eager to unload him. I like him. And so, so, you know, that said, there are defensemen I can think of who might be sort of a fit. I am really hesitant with trade speculation because, again, it involve, it depends on the GMs involved. And I have no idea what they're thinking. But I'll throw out one name. Uh, the Minnesota Wild are kind of fading back from contention in the Western Conference, it seems like. A fading if back they, implies they contended at some point. Yeah, I'm being generous by saying that. There was a point at which they were closer to the top of the, <laughs> the top eight in the conference than they are now, which is, you know, increasingly not very close at all. So I'm wondering if at some point Minnesota starts thinking, okay, maybe this is not going to be our year, surprisingly. And then they look at their defensemen and they say, we have Jonas Brodeen, who has the rest of this year and one more at 4.166. And then they have major financial commitments to Ryan Suter, Matt Dumba, and Jared Spurgeon, who are all signed for at least this year and then three more at pretty big cap hits. So are they at a point where maybe they start thinking Brodeen is the odd man out and they can move someone up to be their next defenseman? You know, Brodeen is a big, physical, decent defensive player. He shoots left, but he plays right sometimes. He's someone that I would be thinking about in terms of if we are dealing out a scoring winger and trying to get something back, maybe that's the kind of door you knock on. But again, you know, it's Jonas Brodin, who I think is a competent guy, but he's not lighting the world on fire. As you said, it's bloody hard to get and fit uh, Sparky the Unicorn 1D. You know, Alex Petrangelo is kind of fun to think about, but St. Louis has no business to be trading people away right now because they're going to try and contend again so stuff like that you know it's kind of it's kind of tough to find an ideal fit because we are so cap strapped it has to be money in money out and most of the trades that i've heard william nylander involved in are very stupid so i don't want to entertain them yeah (laughs) i think realistically you're not you're not going to win trade where you trade William Nylander because he's better than his point totals indicate and he's going to be valued on the market by yep. his point totals not by everything else he does exactly. that makes him better than his point totals mm-hmm. and so, you know we'd be setting ourselves up I think for a bit of a negative side Edmonton or other situation where it's like we have a couple of limited forwards now and then we don't have a lot of support like the fact we have those four guys always gives us two super credible scoring lines. Yeah, we need Without those Nylander, four that gets guys. Tougher. It's it's yeah. way less imposing when it's three of them. Right? And that's true regardless mm-hmm. of who you take out. You know, having having the the two two-headed monsters. 
is what makes mm-hmm. it competitive because two guys can elevate a third, right? Um, yeah, and, and you know, and Tavares can get somebody 25, 30 goals, like if you play a decent enough forward with him. Right. But he won't be at his maximum effectiveness, you know? Like he's not going to be as good as we want him to be. And so, yeah, I, I don't even want to touch any lender trade. Yes, and like... We, we, the Leafs are really we're set up to 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 win during Tavares's prime, right? Tavares is mm-hmm. probably not getting any better at this point. He he's an elite player. He will probably maintain this level longer than a typical player would, right? Remember, aging curves apply to averages, not individuals. Um, mm-hmm. So none of us knows for sure how Tavares will age. We can guess that he will probably age better than the average player because he is you right. know so talented and by all accounts a super hard worker and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, like you, you don't. You don't want to trade anyone or anything that you know reduces his ability because that's kind of what we're optimizing over in, in these next year or two of, of contention, right? Um, on Janssen and Kapanen, I did want to point out one of the things I really loved about Kapanen in particular last year, he was a shot monster. He generated tons of shots. Uh, he was actually pretty comfortably, I think, a first line forward when you look at his shot rate and his expected goal rate. That has like plummeted this year. And I don't have the splits mm-hmm. for how that has changed with him being um, on the on the right wing versus the left wing. I don't know how that's changed with him playing with Kadri versus Kerfoot or Matthews versus uh, Kerfoot. As much as Kapanen is a bit of a lone wolf, playing with good players does give you more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it remains to be seen what happens there. I have enough faith in Kapanen's abilities and skill set that I don't want to cut bait on him at this point i think the most likely thing is that he is still a top six forward in a kind of unique package that can make him a little frustrating right um i don't think he's ever going to quote unquote figure it out and become a high-end skill guy um i think if that was going to happen it would have happened already it would have been borne out in his junior career in his marley's career all that stuff i think he he is what he is in terms of um hands and finish and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think he's ever going to become a good passer but <laughs> you know he's, he's you know every now and then but yeah yeah no, he, uh... he's good enough at what he does and it, it it's the standard it's the standard thing that happens with players where you know you see them for so long that you become inured to what they're good at and you over centralize on their flaws and this is also why every every marley that comes up Everyone's in love with them for the first little bit. And to me, that's in large part because their flaws haven't had time to annoy you yet. Yeah, you you know, you make excuses for, oh, he's just getting adjusted and stuff like that. And then he makes a great play. And, you know, we've seen actually a carousel of Marley's. Maybe this is worth mentioning just because I think this is also partly what people are thinking about when they think about trading a winger. They think who's going to come up. Engvall, as we were saying, I think has shown he's a cut above. He's a real boy, and I think that he's going to be in the NHL probably going forward in some capacity. And then you have this grab bag of Adam Brooks, uh, late stage Jason Spezza, although Spezza's pretty installed, and then Timoshop and Gauthier. Not a ton there. I've liked Brooks in what little I've seen of him, but he hasn't played that much. And... I'm biased to like him because I liked him at the time he was picked. 5.73 points per 60. Uh, You see, you can't beat that. Uh, How many raw points does he have? Three? Probably. 
Yeah. He's paid, so, he's, paid, he's paid 31 minutes. So, yeah, that... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's... that's nice. But, you know, I, I've liked it, and I think that it's probably not incidental that he's... Um, he was a guy that Sheldon Keefe did trust with the Marlies. I remember quotes, you know, him saying, Brooks is the kind of guy that we feel we can play in any situation. That's exactly what you want to hear about a fourth-line guy. But he's not either especially big or especially fast. And so, you know, his brain has to do a lot of the work for him to be effective. Yeah. I find him interesting, but I'm still thinking fourth-liner. Mason Marchman hasn't had much time to show much of anything. Dmitry Chimashov, they seem to like. He's fine. But, like, I look at him and I'm like, he's a, a 12 forward. That's fine. He's a guy that can respectably play in the NHL. I don't think that he's much more than that. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I, I look at, and I just talked about it with Kapanen, um, and Janssen mm-hmm. was quite good at this too, is I look at shot rates, individual shot rates, because to me that that tells me if you are you know, actually kind of involved and being able to keep up with the play and getting yourself in, in good positions. And it's not flawless because some players, like Adam Brooks for one, is just stylistically far more of a passer than he is a shooter, right? He's never going to grade mm-hmm. out well by the Same with Alex Kerfoot. Kerfoot's clearly an NHL player. Um, but even when Kapanen was on the fourth line, he was generating a good amount of shots. And that's that's one of the things that made me like him. Um, Engvall is doing that right now as well. He has very, very healthy shot numbers. You know, it's a small sample, so we don't know how much of that is his true level but he seems very active he seems to get himself in good spots he's he moves well enough uh, and he's big enough that when he gets moving he's hard to kind of dislodge um mm-hmm. Timoshov is not much of a shot generator at all and certainly not much of an expected goal generator his and when you look at his individual expected goals versus his actual you know realized goals uh the latter is about three times the former which is probably mm-hmm. not going to fully sustain itself. Um, his points on on a rate basis are, are actually quite good. I When I watch him, I'm not incredibly impressed. No, he seems to me like the epitome of kind of a workman-like player. If we, like, if we had, you know, picked him up as uh, a July cheapie signing, like Pontus Aberg or something like that, I don't feel like we would have any much feelings about him at all. You know what I mean? It's because he's a Leaf pick. He's been in the organization. People have seen him come up. And I think the organization is a little invested in him. I'm not saying that there's nothing there, but I'm not sure that there's much there that's more than fourth line. I'm not trading anyone to make room for Dmitry Timoshov. I'll I'll put it like that. Exactly. Like, I have no eagerness to promote him at all. And then Freddie Goche, I mean, we've had we've all had a long journey with Freddie Goche. We've talked about it before. He's certainly more than I thought he was going to be at one point. I didn't think he was going to make the NHL uh, at one point in his AHL career. He seemed to be stagnating. He's now done that, but he's, you know, he's right on the line of the kind of guy who is available on waivers a lot. He's big. He's not irresponsible defensively. He can go out there and play a shift and be sort of okay. He does nothing on an NHL offense, despite his best efforts. And so the question is, how low is like the Mendoza line, where it's like it's okay that you produce literally nothing because we're only using you as a twelve forward. You know, 
Gauthier has found his level, and that's great, and it's a little higher than I thought it was, but it's also not anything above a fourth line. So, you know, you look at that combination of guys, what am I basically saying? Adam Brooks maybe a little bit is something in the optimistic scenario, and then the rest of it I'm not really seeing. And even then, like, Brooks, I'm being generous. Like, that's a possibility. That's not a certainty. So, you know, I am conscious that there's a promotion that would be possibly going on there that might not be um, the best. You know, in terms of we're we're taking a hit, talent-wise, if we deal out one of these wingers at wing. Like, we will get worse. That's what I think, anyway. Yeah, I think one of the questions becomes, and I think maybe this is what motivates a lot of this trade speculation on Janssen and Kappen is can we keep Engvall and Mikheyev while also keeping those other two guys right because I think Engvall and Mikheyev have kind of shown themselves to be the cream of the um the depth guys mm-hmm. right or, or the guys who are signed to be depth players we'd like to keep both Mikheyev is an interesting case because when you look at his numbers in, in basically all respects possession points all that stuff he's clearly a pretty good player. Mm-hmm. um he was on a bit of a heater I don't think there's any real doubt about that. But, you know, if he was playing a full season, I would expect him to get a pretty decent amount of money, but he's not playing a full season. He played about, what, 40 games? Mm-hmm. So it's unclear what he's going to get, and presumably the Leafs can play hardball with him to an extent. If he does really want to stay in Toronto and offer sheet isn't really valid, and then, you, you know, you have RFAs over a barrel, and certainly mid-level RFAs are the group that still seems to get squeezed pretty regularly. Yeah, if I had to guess how this is going to end, I'm expecting a kind of a one-year show-me contract. In other words, you know, show me it's real for a full season. Probably in the one to two range. And uh, Katja likes to talk about the guys who make 1.5 million being sort of like, why are you here? You should be getting... <laughs> You should be getting value out of minimum or ELC guys, or you should be signing someone better. I think in this case, since it's such a weird situation where he was showing as better than a one and a half million guy, and then he got kind of cut down just as he was he was doing well, and so now we're not sure if he'll be a hundred percent, what he's going to be like, what he looks like over a larger sample. I think a one-year compromise is really the only way I expect this to work. If he takes a term deal, I expect he's going to want more than we're going to give him. So I, my guess is he seems to want to stay. He seems to like it here. Good relationship with the organization. So I'm expecting a, a one-year on a show-me. Yeah, that would be that would be quite nice. Um, Engvall is also an RFA at the end of the year with Arbrights. Given that he will only have basically a partial season mm-hmm. to, to really work with, probably won't get a ton i imagine so eggball has been very good but he also has been on a bit of a heater as well mm-hmm. um so i expect his points to come down a little bit at least on a rate basis uh, from where they are now he shouldn't be too expensive and you know the leafs do have to address their their defense but they also have 4.5 million being freed up from cody cc yeah which will which will be helpful right i mean essentially you, you replace cc with martin marinson you're saving 3.8 million for a, a, a similar level player to who could play on your third pair, right side even with Firmerins and yeah. have him playing on his offside. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, you can still say, you, you know, when you count it up, if I have uh, Hyman, Mikhaev, Engvall as my sort of left side, and then I have 
uh, Nylander, Marner, Kapanen on my right side. That leaves Janssen as sort of an odd man out. Maybe he's more of a natural fit to be traded there. Um, I'm just saying I don't think that it's, like, forced. You know, it's not something that we have to do if we don't feel that it's something that we really want to pursue. It does seem like a natural fit. Obviously, we're stronger on winging than we are on defense, and maybe there is a deal to be had there. I'm curious as to whether it will happen now, if it will happen in the offseason, what's going to happen. Well, and it's One thing that's worth noting is that Zach Hyman expires after the 2020-2021 season. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez, that's a mouthful. That's part to parts. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, the year after this year. Right. And I love Zach Hyman. I think we both do. We both think he's he's quite underrated. I'd like to keep him. I'm unsure of if we'd be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, don't look now, but Zach Hyman has, is putting together a couple pretty strong years in terms of points, too. Right? Aside from everything else that he does that I think really drives his value as a player, he's getting the offense, the individual offense. Um, Janssen would be signed for two years beyond that. Mm-hmm. That's a, it right? gets into a question of what's Hyman going to pull at that point. Is yes. he getting mid-threes? Is he getting to four? I don't know. Um, and at that point, he will be 29. Yeah, and then you start thinking, you know, there's a, you don't want to fall too in love with complimentary players, even very good ones. And, you know, maybe then he is um, worth letting walk in favor of Andres Janssen, who's at 3.4. I don't know. It's it's kind of on the fence there. Hyman seems to love being in Toronto. You know, he's a Toronto boy. He's got a lot going on here. But the opportunity to make another couple million is not nothing either. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, certainly, you know, I, I think the broader wisdom is right when you just count wingers and you say, do we have a lot of them? It's just... It's not sort of a, a totally easy decision. And so that's why I don't think a move is guaranteed by the trade deadline. It's certainly possible. Um, And and especially as this team kind of rounds into form, maybe Kyle Dubas does find himself thinking, I think it's time to make make a move. You know, a Jake Muzzin-ish move where you get a year and a half. And again, you know, I talked about Jonas Brodin. So, you know, it'll certainly be interesting to keep an eye on there. I'm just, I'm maybe a little less gung-ho to pull the trigger on that compared to some people. Yeah, I I certainly I just don't want to sell low on these guys. Yeah, exactly. Right. I I, I truly do believe in their ability. Kapanen especially. Mm-hmm. You know, Kapanen he's twenty three, right? This is still he, not, not that I think he's going to get vastly better, but he has a long way to go before he gets any worse. Yeah, and y- you know, as much as he's frustrating, it's. Still probably worth noting that I think any combination with, like, him and Kerfoot is the basis of a pretty damn good third line. And I like that. And it's not super expensive either. So, yeah, just, you know, probably not force our hand. Everyone talks about Janssen going in particular, and, you know, I can certainly see why. So, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Um, We already talked about your bad take for this this week. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else? Did you want to double dip on bad takes? <laughs> I'm not that angry right now. Keith has uh, stated me. If this team starts losing again, I'm going to have like three, four bad takes and I'll just flip out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start banking our bad takes. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have any this week either. Um, so that will then will just about do it for us. 
Uh, thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RB and AT Fuleman. We'll see you next week.